Welcome to the Turkey Hunter Podcast, the original all-turkey, all-the-time podcast with your co-hosts Andy Galliano and Cameron Weddington. In our weekly podcast, we're going to bring you some wild turkey calling tips like this. From there, we're going to go into, she's aggravated, there's another hen that's challenged her, or she's challenging another hen, she's going to cut an excited yelp. Advice from old pro turkey hunters like this. The turkeys typically don't like, I think, more times than not, to travel in an easterly direction into the sun first thing in the morning, especially after he gets up. It's a blinding thing. It, it, it's just like you. It's hard for you to see into the sun. Mm-hmm. So if I have a choice, I'm going to try to make it so that I'm going to be on the west side in the morning east side in the afternoon of a turkey exciting live hunts like this holy crap they're coming teach you how to cook your bird with advice such as this with some fresh rosemary and garlic and then cool that off and spread that along the inside of that butterflied turkey breast that we've seasoned on both sides wildlife management tips for your property especially with turkeys like this if you look at the type of habitats that turkeys need for nesting and brooding that tends to be habitat that can be managed more successfully with growing season fire than with dormant season fire. And hopefully along the way, we'll get plenty of these. Well, on November the 28th of 1953, I was attached. When I popped out of my mom and the baby doctor spanked me on the bottom, I went, oh, and I've been doing it ever since. <laughs> I like that. Thank you for tuning in, and now, for this week's show. Hello, and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 417, Building Great Brood Habitat with Marcus Lashley, part one, and I am your co-host and the guy who's having a little bit of a a hard time containing himself right now. And I'm your co-host and the guy who has still been after some predators. Mm-hmm. Have you been doing any calling or are you just strictly no. trapping at this point? I have not broke out the call yet. And I actually have my brother running the traps. So, but we've enlisted help. We've got a coon hunter down there tonight, but Excellent. we are, we are still hammering them, man. I mean, I don't know what's going on here the past month, but the possum bodies are stacking up. <laughs> Let the bodies hit the floor. Yeah. Let the bodies hit the floor. It's all possums, though. It's crazy. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to me how many possums you guys have on your properties down there. And, you know, we may have that many possums on the properties that I hunt. Them. I just don't, I don't catch a whole lot of them in my 
dog proof and you found your own personal little test is that you catch many more in live traps than the dog proofs. Oh yeah. I mean it and you like I never see possums when I go hunting or anything. You don't just see very many possums walking mm-hmm. around. But my gosh, so we've we've caught fifty eight possums now. Wow. And I don't I mean we're catching one or two pretty much every single night. And so now we're up to 159 total predators removed, 93 coons, 58 possums. We've got three skunks. Hmm. And I will say our what what I learned from our trapping series on killing skunks from Alan Probst worked great. The body shooting them through the lungs or heart, no spray. Cool. So, and have you, what's your approach on the trap? Are you just nice and slow and steady yeah. and easy? And are you talking well, to him I, or singing to him? My brother's the one. My brother's the one who's dispatched him. He called me the first day. He's like, "Oh no, I've caught a skunk." I, was, I talked him through. I was like, "Look, we just talked to Alan Probst about this. This guy's a master trapper. Like, just don't alarm the skunk. Just walk up calmly, keep it calm, and shoot it like you would a deer." And he was like, "Are you serious?" And I was like, "Yeah." He was like, "All right, I'm gonna pull the truck up near there and then shoot it like a deer." And I was like, "That's fine. Just don't sketch it out." And that's what he did on the first one because I, I don't think he fully believed me. <laughs> yeah. And he's like, "Yeah, I don't think it's sprayed." He went in there, he got to pulled it out of the trap and everything. He's like, "Yeah, I think it's fine." Yeah, that's so, pretty. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, you know when I told the story about Yankee John calling me when he had, or not just calling me, but he sent a text out in the group text chain and he caught one in his live trap in his mm-hmm. tractor shed. And he's like, what do I do? And I said, yeah. you're not going to believe this, but I actually know what to do. And he goes, no, uh-uh, you're messing with me because he knows I will mess with him. I'll yeah, mess, that, I'll mess with anybody. Say, I love that. Does that does seem like something you would, you would mess with someone about. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can you... <laughs> How awesome would it be? Send him over there with a towel, singing to the skunk. Get sprayed. And then he gets sprayed when he gets right up there, too. <laughs> yeah, that would be pretty incredible. <laughs> Except he'd never talk to me again. Yeah, he'd probably be a little upset. <laughs> so, yeah, he called me afterwards and said, I have to be completely upfront. I thought you were BSing me, but it totally worked. I said, well, that's good because I'm just telling you what I was told. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, it's kind of crazy. It's kind of crazy. But is he doing anything with the essence of the skunk? No. Or skunks at all? Okay. No, we are right. we're not. And, you know, I, we don't have the syringes that are needed and things like that to do that. Because, honestly, we had not caught any skunks, in, you know, since February. Not one skunk. And then he caught three in two days. Hmm. It was just random, and that's all. That's it. Those two days. Those are the only times we caught skunks. <laughs> wow. So it's just kind of random. They they must have just something had them moving. I guess those those nights. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, good. I'm glad y'all are still wearing them out. And tell me again, just total combined acreage for those so numbers. Ninety percent of them have come off of. We actually own. It's like 300 acres in a bottom. And that's where 76 of them have come from. Mm -hmm. And then we're at 28 across the road. We own an upland farm where we do all of our quail management. Yeah. And we've killed 29, actually. You get one this morning, 29 off it. And I mean, there's hardly any woods on that. It's all, it's 90% agriculture. Yeah. And so we've killed 29 off that, which is doing pretty good damage over there. Mm -hmm. But 
it works out pretty good because most of the predators, I assume, come up out of that hardwood bottom to the upland farm. And so we've hammered on them both. And I tell you, you know, as I've said before, the main people who are haters on trapping, oh, they'll, they'll just move right back in. They'll be right back there. You just basically paused them for a second. They'll, there's one sitting at the property line waiting to run over on you as soon as he hears the gunshot. Well, here's my test I've done. I got a buddy that's got the best coon dog I know of, all right? And I took him down there. A group of us went in February with his best dog, and we killed 11 raccoons in two hours. Mm-hmm. All right? He came back two weeks ago with the exact same dog and killed one raccoon, and he hunted for seven hours. Wow. And he came back last night and hunted from 9 p.m. until 4 a.m., and his dog never barked once. Wow. So you tell me. <laughs> his his comment was i think you thinned them out pretty good <laughs> yeah well uh, i don't i don't think there's any doubt that the trapping has thinned out your population of coons now yeah. i know you're you know some people are going to say oh well you know just wasn't a good night you know temperature humidity the barometric pressure the moon whatever the the reason may be Mm -hmm. but going from 11 to 1 and 11 to none is same dog pretty substantial property yeah i mean you're looking at didn't even bark once didn't didn't hit any den trees nothing you know i mean Mm -hmm. it's a pretty good sample size and he's gonna go a couple more times this week so yeah if he goes five times and kills one coon i'm I'm willing to say it's not just bad weather (laughs) if he goes five times and kills 10 coons yeah you can probably still say it's not just the weather that's it you know so because the time we killed 11 we literally like the dog was treeing so quickly that we never even hardly left the very front woods. Like we never even penetrated the woods hardly because he had like, it was just unbelievable. Like it was unbelievable. Mm-hmm. And now he's hunting really hard through the whole forest and nothing. I mean, he said he was hunting till 3 a.m. last night or whatever. Yeah. Same dog, same guy, same property. So that experiment's going to be really interesting to me because I know, I have seen it, that dog is bad to the freaking bone. If he trees, there's a coon in it, and he doesn't miss it. <laughs> yeah. So we'll see, but I'm pretty confident I've set him back quite a few paces on, on our lands. Yeah, good deal. What are you trying to contain your excitement for? You sounded like you are about to just burst in your guy who... Um... Really am. I mean, we are now at week 10 of football season, and my excitement is not about football. It's about getting older, and every week that goes by, we are closer to spring season. And as of right now, we are 142 days, 9 hours, 25 minutes, and 46 seconds away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. I mean, that's a little over, well, it's about three and a half months. Wow, that's freaking awesome. I'm sorry. It's not. It's four and a half months. There you go. Yeah. Your mortgage broker doing some high math in his head there. Four and a half months, but still, much. it's flying by now. Yeah. You know, it's... Just what we talked about not long ago, it seems like football season starts, then you have the holidays, and then wham, bam, it's, you know, we have a couple of turkey shows in there, and wham, bam, is here. So, won't be long. 
won't be long at all, man. Long. It's coming quick. Mm -hmm. and we will be turkey hunting once again in the spring. I can't wait. I'm fired up. We're we're only 117 days away from you and I chasing them for the first time. Yeah. But can't wait for that daily grind to hit. That's I, I'm just I'm so fired up about it already again. Yeah. You know, you know I mentioned the couple of shows that we have coming up. So I tried to get online and book rooms in Nashville. Yeah. And the Opryland is sold out of their allotment of NWTF rooms for both Thursday night and Friday night. Wow. Yeah. It's their 50th. This will be the 50th anniversary of the NWTF and not the 50th anniversary of the the sports show and convention, just of the NWTF. And so, you know, it's a big deal and they're making a big deal of it. They should. 50 years is a long time for any company to be around. And yeah. so I'm not terribly surprised that they're sold out, but... I may be commuting from Birmingham to Nashville every single day. Just kidding. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. But yeah, was a little disappointed when I saw that they were sold out of rooms. And I may have to make a top secret call into the NWTF to see if they're going to, you know, be able to get any more rooms booked at that special NWTF rate. Yeah, maybe they can hook you up, man. Yeah. You got the inside scoop, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. Well, I'll just ring the hotline. They'll, you know, it'll flash up Andy Galliano and. They'll answer the phone. Yes, sir, Mr. Galliano, whatever you need, sir, we got you, sir. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. how that'll work. Of course, of course. Mm -hmm. What do you have? You, you've told me the concept for this week. Uh, it's it's a recording of something you went to that I'm envious I didn't get to go to. What do we have on tap for this week? I'm going to say that you guys listening, if you own property or you own hunt a friend or family member's property, you may want to get a pad and pen out and take some notes. So I told you guys back in August that I went to the Alabama chapter of the NWTF, the state chapter. They had a field day and it was held over at my friend Bud's property over in northeast Alabama. And the speakers, two of the speakers, were Marcus Lashley and Mike Chamberlain. And so I throw those two names out because most everybody listening to this show, and especially this, this time of year, is going to know those two guys. So Lashley, his pretty much his entire presentation was how to build good brood habitat. And need more of. Absolutely. And he mentions it in his presentation how little ideal brood, brood habitat we have, and it's mind-blowing yeah. how little of it we have, that people that. don't manage their land for brood. They always say, well, I'm managing, you know, I'm going to have this area over here for nesting habitat. But the thing is, and the studies show this, because there are years and years and years of monitoring tagged turkeys or GPS toting turkeys and radio telemetry turkeys, monitoring them to show that hens choose any habitat to nest in. So trying to grow or make good nesting habitat is a real challenge because a hen, I, years ago, I was turkey hunting in Alabama, South Alabama, my old hunting club that we were in for 30 years. And 
at the at this point in time, there had been very, very, very little timber cut. I'm walking through some pretty big woods that have probably not been cut in 60, 70 years. And I hear something going, what in the world? I hear it again. Of course, I'm, you know, I was walking and I heard it and I stopped. I'm like, what in the world is that? And I hear it again. What is that? And I hear it again. I'm like, where is that coming from? I turn around and look, I had walked past a hen who had nested in the hollowed out trunk of a tree that had fallen over. And she was sitting on a tree branch, probably four feet above the nest and was growling or groaning or whatever, you know, whatever sound that was at me. And she's got a nest in the hollowed out trunk of a tree that's fallen over. Hens are going to nest anywhere. Yeah. You know, so how do you prepare your property for that? You don't, but you can prepare your property for brood habitat. And of course, you know, you don't want to make your entire 200 acre property brood habitat, but we need to have more of that in the landscape. And that's what Lashley talks about in his presentation. And now I'm going to say this, we may, listening to the audio only, we may get lost a little bit in the presentation because a lot of the presentation was him showing slides of what good brood habitat looks like. But he's asking questions when he throws these pictures up on the screen of, you know, does anyone know, you know, recognize any plants in this picture? Does anyone have any kind of an idea as to why this particular picture is picture of good brood habitat and then he'll explain what it is so even though there are are pictures and this would be a better video than it would an audio presentation or than it is an audio presentation for us he's still very descriptive about what the pictures are showing so we can get an idea just listening to the audio what the pictures are because he's telling us what's making it good habitat or bad habitat or you know what's different or unique in this picture or that picture so you know i think it's going to be still very easy to follow along with and even if it's not there's still so much good information in this presentation that you know i thought it was outstanding and i think i wore him out with questions (laughs) I would do. Uh, yeah. And I think that, you know, the other, oh, I don't know, 30 people who were there to see the presentation were probably like, man, I wish that guy shut up. But I had questions and I was asking. I wanted to learn more, feed me more knowledge. And so he definitely did that. But what do you say? You want to jump in and roll this? We're going to listen to the first half of Lashley's presentation because it's two hours long, a little over two hours long total. And Cameron and I don't really want to ever do a two and a half hour long podcast. We don't want to be Joe Rogan. Yeah. So we're going to split it up. Nobody listens to that guy anyway. Right, yeah. Uh, if he had the number one podcast in the world, I would say that's probably somebody we want to try to emulate. But, you know. Yeah, he's a nobody. Right, exactly. <laughs> So I mean, luckily you didn't build this up at all. I have no high expectations. Let's get in here and listen to it. <laughs> we'll see you guys on the other side. 
So uh, I put this picture up here to prove to y'all that I killed a turkey one time. Uh, so I'm Marcus Lashley. Uh, if y'all want me to talk like this, I will. <laughs> and we got a couple of gators in here. <laughs> I grew up in Alabama, uh, a little ways from here, but Sumter County. A lot of folks know where that's at. I grew up between Demopolis and Livingston. And uh, I can remember when I was, I was probably about this tall, the t first time I heard a turkey gobble and saw it strut in, I was with my dad and he was sitting there, had me between his legs and turkey came in and I watched it strut all around and he got such a kick out of watching me react to that, he just let it walk away. And uh, that was the start of my obsession. And uh, you know, I have kept up with that all this time you know and I think I killed my first turkey when I was 10 and uh, I've only killed a handful more since then but you know I get after them a lot when I can and I love turkey hunting and in particular I really wanted to focus on how to make more of them and I have focused a lot of my passion and research on that and uh, so several of you have come up and talked to me said you've heard me on podcast or whatever you know trying to take a pretty aggressive approach to not just doing work that you all value but also trying to get it out to you that's why I'm here you know I, I genuinely you know see problems with turkey populations and I want to make more turkeys for everybody even if I don't have access to them I guess you know if we all get on that same bandwagon we can make make up some ground so <clears throat> that's kind of what's driving me uh, they did ask me to, to mention to you uh, a lot of people don't understand how we go about doing this work and there's a misperception that we're funded by our university or or by state agencies and in some cases that's what that's uh, that's the way we do it but a lot of work like what I'm gonna present to you today we actually in fact my funding is more from private donations than it is from public sources like that and that's how I can do stuff that's still actually applicable. So I see, I get feedback from people and hear what you need, and then when I have that type of funding, I can go and do that rather than having to apply for funding that's for some other purpose, you know, with, with the objectives of an agency or whatever involved. So um, I think Mike has a substantial amount of funding through that same thing. You've probably seen. Uh, some of those efforts for us to raise funds in different ways, but Mark, how, do you, how do you make a donation? Well, for for me, and uh, I'll let Mike yeah. talk about his own. Uh, I have accounts set up. Basically, I have one that's for wild turkey research and, and extension. How, how do we access? How do uh, so I can provide that link to anybody, or if you're following us on social media, I've got a couple handles right there. We have the links right there, easy for you to click on it. And that basically gives us the freedom to do the kind of work, you know, that, that uh, you all want. It's also helping fund the podcast network that, that I host. You know, all those things are, are being either funded exclusively or at least supplemented uh, by that. And I think a, a roughly 70% of my funding is coming from private individuals that have a real passion for turkeys or, or deer or whatever. So, uh, <clears throat> with that being said, uh, no, I, actually, I'm on. 
I like to talk on the same slide, so it's not that big. I thought it well it rolled when I had it over here. Well, I guess if you don't mind yeah. clicking through, uh, you can go ahead and go to the next one. So, uh, you know, we talked a lot already about food plots and, and attracting turkeys, and that's important. But I'm really going to talk more about how to make more turkeys. And some of the things that we're going to talk about attract them. But, you know, a food plot program can go a long way when you already have good nesting success and, and brood rearing success and those things. The food plot can be a really good supplement, and obviously it's attractive, right? And I like to attract turkeys just as much as the next person. But, you know, if you're not producing turkeys, that, that's a, a different problem and we need to do different things to, to uh, get at that problem. So how many of you in here have fields, openings? Okay. How many of you have fields that are dedicated to something that isn't a pasture grass or a food plot? Okay. Yeah, old field. So we have some. How many of you like looking at that right there? For a time of years. <laughs> well, it, we got some flower and stuff, so you can see it's spring. It's spring. I mean, looks like a pretty good place to kill a turkey, doesn't it? I mean, set up right over here in this little spot. I may have known someone who that has done that, that before. Turkey? No, it wasn't. <laughs> that turkey didn't come from here. Yeah, but a lot of people look at that and think, "Man, that's that's beautiful, right?" Go ahead and click. So that may look good, but in terms of, of nesting and brooding, that's about as bad as it gets for structure. Right? And this is fescue, and uh, you can replace it with the, the pasture grass of your choice. Have you ever heard the term mat forming grass? Anybody heard that? What does that mean? Yeah, you might hear it say sod forming grass. So look at this grass right here. When you kind of look across that, do you see any soil, dirt, soil? No, so that, that's kind of where it's getting that name. It's pretty well covering most of the space, right? So when I'm, I, I talk to people about this issue a lot and it's something that I view as a major problem at the landscape scale. We don't have much opening that isn't devoted to something like this. Just not that much. So I hear people talk about, oh, I'm going to improve it for turkeys. What do you think they do, the average person? You may do it yourself. What would you do? Put it in a food pot. That's one thing. What's another thing? Disc it, burn it. Those are good options. I hear stop mowing it. People say that. So let's click to the next one. So that's what it looks like if you're, you know, do one of those things, particularly stop mowing, right? That's probably a little bit better. But we still have no bare ground under there, right? There's a lot of grass. And for, from my perspective, you know, we, we really love grass. I'm talking about the royal we, just people. We love grass and we have, we, we depend on grass and a lot of things. A lot of our food comes from grass, right? And we, we love to have areas in grass. But the fact of the matter is that that's not very good structure 
In fact, it's pretty poor steel to produce turkeys. If you're trying to make turkeys, that's not where we're, you know, that's not what we're looking for. Go ahead. So if we get rid of that carpet, you can hit it again. Now, this is the same. This is from the same place. That's, there, there's a pasture here. I, I think it's about 15 acres total. Uh, it was in fescue, and you can see back here and right over there, we've got a few things that are being planted. And then look in that matrix through there. What do you see there? A lot of people say a bunch of junk, a bunch of weeds. How many of you can name a plant in there? Look at it. We got somebody naming some. Can you name them? Can you, those of you who can't name them, can you not name them because you can't see them or you don't know what they are? I, I think that I'm just, you know, one thing I, I like for the audience to interact. So if y'all have questions or comments or you want to talk, please come on with it. I like to, to do that more. You're going to have some morning glory out there somewhere. Oh, there's probably. And it's going to wrap up and take over a lot of stuff. Yeah. Well, if you don't do anything with it, it will. Say again. Uh, that's close. There's probably some of that in it. Uh, I don't think that particular one is, is old field, but there are some old field aster in that field. So, uh, but yeah, right now, I want you to pay attention to a couple of things. You see all this soil, there's very little grass, right? And that's one thing that's really important, and I, we don't emphasize that enough, and I've especially here lately been emphasizing that a lot. We've taken care to, this was fescue. It was a fescue pasture with horses on it for a long, long time. And then went in, sprayed the fescue and got rid of it. We had some responses from some problematic weeds that we didn't want, particularly vines. And we used spot spraying to get rid of some of those things. And, uh, you know, over time, five or six year period, well, all of a sudden we de developed this into a place where we have some food plots in it, but man, that, that produces turkeys. That produces a lot of turkeys. You want to go to the next one? So this is a, another example of that. And you can see some of these weeds are problems in your food plot, like the, the horse weed. Or, you know, there, there are some things, but they're still providing those broadleaf forb plants still provide a structure that's really important and it's not very common on the landscape especially in old field communities uh, we just don't have that much of it on the landscape and it's a way that you can really affect productivity and, and even if you have a small property it's a good way. Do you have a question? Did you diss that some or is that all spraying? I'm going to talk about it in a minute. Yep. Good question though. Yeah. So just to look at that picture is that more Good nesting habitat or more brood rearing habitat? Good right brood. now, that's more brood. Well, you think about it, and when I'm talking about brooding, I'm thinking about little bitty ones, right? That's where we're, we're really important. Dr. Chamberlain's going to talk about biology a lot more, and he may go into that, I don't know, but uh, that first couple weeks of life is really critical. And, you know, this kind of structure is where they're much more successful. 
you know the stru structures allowing them to meander through there the thermal stuff some of the stuff that was just published on that shows a you know it's providing thermal refuge and then uh, avoidance of predators and then high insect abundance which is what's critical to poults to grow fast they need protein to to sustain that growth so they'll you know that this is producing tons of insects literally tons so, so Mark, Mark what's your breakdown of the food plots versus the in that particular case I, I would say there's probably three of the 15 acres are in food plot but that's not a formula. That that's just what uh, work works in that particular circumstance. The main point is, you know, if you have big openings like that, you don't have to do the same thing in all of it, and it's desirable not to. And having think, you know, having some food plots in there that are really attractive during turkey season, and uh, provide some high quality forage and everything, mixed in with some really high quality brooding. Is, is a great thing to have, right, right adjacent. <clears throat> Go ahead. So here's another picture. What about that one? Anybody name some plants in that one? Poke salad. Poke salad. Pokeweed, yep. So that's this plant right here. You can see the pink stem on it, several of them in there. What do you not see in there? Grass. No grass. Now when I'm talking about grass, I'm not talking about native warm season grasses. Right? I'm talking about mat forming grass. So, you know, if you have uh, bahia pasture or fescue or uh, orchard grass, you may have some of that around here, you know, those kinds of things are really poor from a turkey productivity standpoint. And most, in my experience, when I'm working with folks, when they're trying to make a pulp factory, they're failing to deal with the grass. And then even when you do, you can have problems, especially if you're integrating it into a food plot program to establish some of, you know, some of this stuff. You end up with grasses that are really good at colonizing disturbed soil. Like you heard about crabgrass, for instance. Uh, Goosegrass, that's another one. You know, uh, Italian ryegrass, another big time problem. I, I see it covering up people's fields. So uh, we'll talk about that a little more, but uh, those kinds of grasses are, are really, you know, hampering your success in terms of, of uh, pulp productivity. Go ahead. So this is just looking the, the other way at a different part of it, and uh, you can see the kind of structure that was the main thing that I wanted you to see and kind of reiterate, because I get asked all the time, well, what am I actually looking for? And this is the kind of structure that we're talking about when we're saying early successional communities that are forb dominated. Now, you know, having some native warm season grasses in there, they, they are clump forming grass, not a sod forming grass. So basically what that means is the plant is a it's originating from a single base and it'll generally be a small circle like this depending on how old the plant is. And then that will you know produce a tall uh, stem for the flowering and seed production and it sort of has this uh, umbrella type effect. When that's mixed in with your forbs, perfectly fine. It's really about having all this bare ground underneath that's easy to travel, especially for these little bitty poles. 
The same thing applies to quail. A lot of this, uh, you know, will be used by quail if it's in a place where you can support quail. You can go ahead. All right. So let's talk about fire sign. Uh, one thing I, I forgot that I was going I was going to put a slide in here, but uh, I can tell you instead. Uh, I just produced a, a with a bunch of scientists a free fire training that we tried to cover every all the questions that we get from people, especially people who haven't been using fire or who are uncomfortable with it and wanting to learn more. And it basically walks you through fire weather, smoke, you know, uh, the tools to use, how you apply it to different objectives for wildlife habitat, forest management. I mean, we tried to include as much of that as possible with the idea to get people knowledgeable about the use of fire and then where to go get, to get the appropriate training and, and that sort of stuff to get your permits. It does not replace your state level training that you get certified but it walks you through all of those things that you need in, in addition to different ways to use fire. It's free to everybody you can take it on your own time uh, we have it all over the internet and uh, if you want to email me or message me I'm happy to provide that link I think we're we're over a thousand landowners have taken it so far uh, but it's steadily growing my email is really easy, marcus.lashley at ufl.edu. Uh, I, I get messaged more online on, on different platforms now uh, than I do email, and that's the that doctor disturbance. You know, I'm, I answer it either way. But uh, I'm happy to provide that link, and you can take it wherever you're at on your own time. I think it takes about on average out of all those people they're completing it in about six hours of time and you can do an hour here and there or whatever you want to do but uh we wanted that to be available to get everybody up to speed on you know the the latest research in fire and the fire effects but also on the nuts and bolts for getting started or just you know getting familiar with with uh, liability how to deal with smoke concerns you know all that kind of stuff that we get questioned about all the time that, that's what that's for. So, uh, <clears throat> in terms of the the fields that we were just looking at, there's a combination of approaches being used to achieve that. And uh, at this point, we've got it in a maintenance level with herbicide. We don't really have that much weed problem. And anything, anytime something pops up, we spot spray it, uh, usually with glyphosate, uh, depending on what it is. And that's how we're dealing with it. And uh, you know, it's really in a maintenance mode. There's a uh oh, yeah, go back to that one. It's going to show. There's a couple of ways that you can use fire. One, the most common way by far, is to use it in February, March. You know, maybe early April for some people, uh, depending on where you're at and what your objectives are. And that's perfectly fine to maintain that structure. If you do that repeatedly in perpetuity on a relatively frequent basis, you'll maintain it in early succession, but generally the composition is going to start to shift towards those perennial native grasses. Right? So that's not desirable. It's fine to have some of that in there, but you don't want it to be 90% of the plant community. 
and it will you can end up in that situation. Another problem is hardwood encroachment. You can see right there. Uh, we we've got a bunch of work going on this one regional study where we're replicating it in a lot of different places uh, looking at different time of fire and that's showing pretty clearly that our fall burning which how many of you have set a fall fire okay a few one <laughs> was it on purpose <laughs> uh, yeah uh, I'm going to show you some of this data in a few minutes but I'll just kind of get you primed for it there's a lot of good burn days in the fall, and that is the least utilized part of the burn window by far. And I'm talking about across the southeast. People don't think of that as being time to burn. But what our data is showing, and there's been a few other studies uh, that I was not affiliated with that are showing similar things, is in terms of hardwood control, that is far more effective than burning at any other time of the year. And uh, in our regional study, we have four uh, times of, the, you know, we're doing spring, summer, like a June time frame, September time frame, and then, uh, you know, a December time frame, trying to, you know, fill in the blanks. And, and uh, we're tracking things like hardwood survival and growth. And uh, the survival of the hardwoods is much lower in that time frame. In fact, uh, some of the work from Craig Harper, who I, I've mentioned, and uh, some of you have talked about, you've heard him and seen his stuff. Uh, he has a great book that outlines a lot of this stuff that that we're talking about. I'm happy to share that if you want uh, want to know what that is. But and uh, he shared some of this these pictures and stuff, and a lot of this I did with him. <coughs> uh, the well, I lost my train of thought. Where was I at? You the hardwood the, yeah, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. So he did a, a study that was specifically on old field management and he was looking at hardwood encroachment and com he compared that to different herbicide applications and the fall burning was equally as effective as the herbicide. It's pretty incredible. So we're talking about a substantial change in the direct mortality of the trees. On top of, yeah, go ahead. This Yeah. Well, there's a lot of fuel in there, still, uh, depending on what what you have in it. Now, if you have a warm season, if you have one of these warm season sod forming grasses, they're not going to burn them unless you kill them. So uh, it really depends on what your fuel type is. But when you get it into this old field community and you you get into the right conditions, it, it burns better than you would expect. Okay. So that's a very common thing. And I'm often surprised when, especially when I go out to our research plots and I look at something like, I don't know about this. And then it burns really well. And, and often uh, I've worked with several landowners that have embraced this idea of just they're going to burn whenever they get a good burn day and they've had great success with it and a lot of them tell me very consistently I get I would I'd much rather burn then like after they've done it a while they'd much rather burn at that time even from a safety standpoint because there is a lot of fuel natural fuel breaks uh, that you can utilize at that time of year uh, and uh, you know the fire behavior and everything is 
something that's more desirable for for those people and they're in you know Alabama and Mississippi so uh, so Mark, what, what's the time frame you, that you would do the late season burn? What do you like mean, like start, the interval between? Well, no, like would you start like July and October? Or what? Well, we're, we're, I'm going to uh, go into that in a little more detail in a few minutes. But uh, in general, you know, think about September being a really good time. And then, you know, you can go later than that. But we're trying to do it before the plants go dormant. So these deciduous trees, before they drop their leaves, before they start yellowing up, that's when you have really good control. Uh, and then earlier than that, you tend to have fewer good burn days. So like in August, we don't have that many good burn days. I'm going to show you some data on that in a minute. Uh, but, it, you know, I'm not really advocating that you do one thing. In fact, I'm explicitly advocating that you don't do one thing. Alternate. You know, have diversity in structure and, and uh, you know, having some early succession that has woody encroachment in it can be really good nesting. So I'd, I'd rather have nesting and brooding right there close together if possible, right? That, that's uh, there, There's nothing wrong with having some places that have a, a little more woody encroachment. But I consistently hear that problem I can't deal with the hardwoods. And this is a way that we can use fire pretty effectively. Uh, uh, some of, I have a student working on this right now, and we're kind of just getting the data, looking at the season where she's actually tracking how fast the hardwood grows. And it's pretty consistent already that if you top kill, let's say a sweet gum, you know, that's this tall, we top kill one with fire and it makes it through that. It's just top killed, you know, it's going to re-sprout. We top kill that in, in September, October, and then compare how tall it is the next October in comparison to a March fire that occurs after. So we're looking at how tall is the sweet gum seedling following October, a full year later, versus the uh, height of that sweet gum that got top killed in March and it's only, you know, what, six months later? We're, we're talking about twofold difference in height. The plant can't handle that timing for a suite of reasons. It doesn't handle it well and that's why you get higher mortality. But you, you've basically set up the odds against it to, to re-sprout and be successful. And not only you get higher mortality, but the plant trying to recover, basically think about what happened. You've top killed it and it either re-sprouts if you've got a little bit of growing season left or it may have to deal with not having any above ground tissue all the way through the winter. And though the combination of those things, there's also some uh, potentially some disease stuff effects, you know, desirable in this case for the plant where it, it's not even fending off pathogens well itself. And all of those things accumulate into a slower response from the hardwoods that you're trying to get rid of. And all that's desirable. Uh, so there's you know, a multitude of effects. Another thing that's really interesting about that is the desirable forbs respond better to that timing than they do other times of the year. So you're having a com combined effect and they're actually somewhat independent of each other where you're decreasing the hardwood encroachment and promoting a bunch of forbs that you want. Desire, you know, desirable things to colonize and 
Uh, yeah, go ahead. Scott, question. Uh, the property I, I burned is quite hilly. Is there been any studies about the um, basically wash or you know erosion from a, a late fall burn um, versus obviously spring burn? Uh, I'm not aware of any work on that. Uh, I have anecdotally been around a lot of sites and I haven't seen a, an appreciable difference in, in erosion. So, uh, but I'm, that, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I, I, don't, I can't put my finger on any studies that have done that. In fact, if you go and look in the literature on, on uh, the timing of fire and they'll talk about comparing growing season to dormant season, it almost exclusively, with the exception of just a couple of studies, when they have growing season, they're talking about April or May. And they're comparing February to April and May. And then sometimes, uh, more recently, it will be June. But, I mean, there's almost no studies on the, the late growing season. All of that is still common. You know, a lot of this is the newest research and some of it we haven't even published. You know, we're just getting it out. Uh, me and, and uh, a couple of other people that are doing a lot of fire work. So, uh, yeah. Do you have any experience with burning at night? I do, yeah. Uh, so the question was experience burning at night, and uh, I I really like doing that. Yeah. The problem is uh, you get very few opportunities. In most cases, getting a burn permit at night is really hard, and uh, there's some reasons for that. Uh, you know, you with the uh, smoke management is the particular problem, and uh, you know the. Uh, it's just hard to get a permit and do it safely. So I, I see that more often in Florida than anywhere else where people consistently use night burning, uh, but it's, it's very limited. And I talked to one of the guys in Mississippi that works with a lot of landowners on that, and he, he said he tracked it one year and he, they had two days in Mississippi that they could get a burn permit or something like that in that particular year. So you know, it's pretty... Uh, narrow opportunity but there's a lot of good things about it you get a more desirable fire behavior often it's kind of meanders around you can see what's going on and you know the diversity of structure that comes with that diversity and fire spread and intensity is is really desirable well, I've got if, some 10 year old loblaws yeah and uh, really was trying to do something to clean those up and mm -hmm. I started last year burning at night and I mean man that just yeah that's good. Now that that's great. If you can maintain that low fire intensity, even with young pines, you can pull that off without any problem with the pines. I get asked that all the time about burning in young pines. Yeah. Just, just a quick point: we're blessed in Alabama with our fire laws, and what women we can't burn. Um, you can't get a permit really for like two or three days. It doesn't differentiate between day and night. Yeah. Instead of fire, I just be aware, like you said, about where your smoke's going, mm -hmm. and uh, you don't go across because it will follow drainages um, wherever it goes. In other words, go down in the draw, mm -hmm. and if you've got a major highway interstate, you've got to put up some yeah. um, signage and blinking lights and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, liability is against you. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, you've probably seen some of those horror stories where you have a big pile up on a road. A lot of times that. That not necessarily associated with a night fire, but it's associated with smoke at night. 
you know where where that the smoke sits down and, and uh, if it does that in a sensitive area it could be a real real big problem so uh, yeah but that's a good point a lot of the southern states in particular have you know uh, legislation in place that, that as long as you're following uh, the, the correct procedures it's, it's providing you some protection from that liability so that's the kind of stuff we we had an expert on liability go through the module uh, who is not me <laughs> on, on the liability aspect but we have a module on that because it's a huge limitation like people are afraid of the liability and I, I'm, I understand that completely that doesn't mean it's not a really effective tool and it can really help with turkey productivity so uh, you can go ahead alright so uh, here we're in a little different scenario but you can still see the fire uh, progressing through there go ahead and now we've you know this is directly after the fire there's still actually some structure above it and at that point uh, based on some some of my work uh, I mean that that is a really attractive place for turkeys right now they come in foraging that uh, go ahead to the next one and then it is a really productive place once it starts looking like this and you can see uh, this one this particular place is being burned on two to four somewhere in that based on what we're seeing in the structure and uh, you know we're uh, producing some really good brooding for some part of that and nesting for other parts of it all right so it's a pretty good uh, one thing that you'll notice me say since you yeah. cut all the grasses, they can move around in there. Is that what? Yeah, that structure. Even though it looks thick. Right. Okay. So they're, and this is starting to get to the point where they're going to start using it for nesting. Okay. So. That's not brood cover. Yeah. Good nesting Right. Okay. It's hard to tell how high that stuff is in there, but is there any problem with it getting so high the hen doesn't fix? You know, she can't pick her head up and look around, or they just duck under and go all through? No, I think it definitely, you know, once it starts getting up at that level, uh, it starts you know, decreasing the, the use of it for a hen. But, I mean, a lot of the places where the hens are nesting is in stuff where, like that. So, you can go ahead. So, uh, another tool that most of you probably have access to uh, this can be really effective for field management is uh, using disking. Go ahead. And uh, this field in particular is being dissed every other year. What's all this stuff right here? Can y'all see that yellow? It's not really a big problem in this particular case, but it can become a big one, especially when you're using disking. That's Italian ryegrass, not planted. And it's kind of poking up, and uh, that's one thing that you know you, you may end up with with a fall disking like this, is uh, particularly Italian ryegrass, but you might have some unwanted grass in that. Uh, go ahead. So uh, this is just showing you the, the structure at the ground level. So uh, in terms of planting, you can produce some turkeys in, in some of your plantings. And one of them that uh, Craig really likes a lot, and I, I'm, it's growing on me because I've seen him you know, show me the, the uh, success with it, uh, is planting a combination of crimson and wheat 
and there's a couple of things that, that we really like about it. One, it's super attractive for deer in the fall. A lot of people are planting them for that reason. And then it's really effective to attract turkeys during turkey season. And then these plants are dying, you know, about, uh, you know, late turkey season. And then you're starting to get a flush of things, forbs, weeds that you would be trying to control in many circumstances are starting to, to respond to that. Go ahead. Is that all this week you're planting? Yeah, uh, I think I've got it on the next one, but yeah, so they'll eat the seed heads on that, particularly the armless wheat variety. Go ahead, this uh, turkey was actually killed in that plant. There's nothing wrong with the wheat, you know, just planting wheat, just a, a stand of that. And you can see uh, we're trying to pair things together here. Uh, go ahead. And then, uh, like I was talking about, th those plants are dying back and then you start to have this flush in forbs, like this ragweed right here. Uh, you can see a whole bunch of ragweed and, and uh, some other forbs colonizing that. And it's a pretty good place to brood in. So, go ahead. Here's uh, another picture, kind of like chufa. Turkeys will, but, you know, this is oats, but uh, they definitely eat, you know, those seed heads off of it. And particularly with wheat, there's a few good onless varieties. Everybody know what I'm talking about when I say onless? No? no. You, you know what a wheat seed head looks like? It's got those big long hairs on it. So we have through breeding created some that, that don't have that at all or it's very uh, small in comparison to our general wheat varieties and those seed heads, when it's an onless variety, are really uh, attractive to turkeys. They, and they gobble them down. And uh, pretty commonly when we have a situation like this and you kill one, you kill a gobbler late in the afternoon, you'll see a crop like that. They'll, they'll be full of them. Yeah, onless, it, it's more difficult to find because there's only a few varieties. On, A W N L E S S. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know who was talking. Okay, the store in Truckless one is one in Trussell. Seed Company. They're just starting to get it in. So, yeah, you have to shop for it. One thing I was going to point out how many of you have winter food plots that look like that in the spring, but you replace that ragweed with clover? Right? We see almost no use of those plots by broods that are less than two weeks old. Because you kind of, I mean, you know this, you walk out there and there's mm -hmm. wheat and oats standing there and there's this carpet of white or crimson clover under it. We don't see young broods using that. And the reason is they get soaking wet when they walk through it. Mm -hmm. And poults can't thermoregulate when they're less than two weeks old. They, they can't stay out in the sun, they overheat. So they're constantly trying to get under shade, which Marcus has pointed out repeatedly, this, that structure. Mm -hmm. So if you, if you think about it, about 90% of all pulp moss occurs within the first two weeks. So if they get beyond two weeks, they're in pretty good shape. Mm -hmm. So if you're not seeing them use those plots when they're less than two weeks, there's a reason for that. And that's because they, that clover, if you go back to that picture, if you think back mentally to that picture he had of that plot, he said, that he and Craig liked, it had clumps of clover out there, 
versus like a carpet of clover, that's a good thing. That mm -hmm. right there. If you plan a, if you say, you know, you're trying to plan a deer plot, if you're going to hunt on it, like we've been using uh, crimson clover and oats and wheat. Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of people go to that slide we were on. Uh, it was, go ahead. A lot of people, it starts getting weedy like that, and then they want to go mow it. And then you're mowing down the best place to produce poults on your property. And, you know, another thing that you hear really commonly is turkeys are an edge species, and you hear that about a lot of species. But, uh, you know, some of the work suggests that. You know, I'm not going to get into the minutiae of that, but uh, you know, if they're just using the edge of the plot, it's probably because it's not suitable in the plot. That's why they're relegated to the edge. You are, we, we don't want to relegate them to the edge because all that space is wasted space now. You want to maximize your space for turkey production. And, and if they're relegated to the edges and along the roadsides and that sort of stuff to brood in, that, that's not what you want. Yeah? In that area, are predators working the most too? I think Mike did some stuff on that with, uh, was it nest predation that you were showing that? So, in the, in a, I've done some work like that with deer, where if you, you can have really high quality cover for them, along edges or in really narrow strips and it it does increase predation you know it's easier to hunt it makes a lot of sense if you look you, at like that field right there if you're a pole and you're 20 days old you know you're you're starting to get chicken side if you're out in the middle of that or on the edge and a hawk or something comes after you what do you do you just duck under something and hide you don't mm -hmm. run yeah. versus say an open clover patch with very little structure, or some of the pictures he showed at the beginning, those poles, what do they do? They run. But when they're running, they're burning energy. And then they've got to go and hide and then come back into the plot. Well, the whole time they're doing that, they're burning energy and not taking in energy. Mm -hmm. And that results in an energetic deficit by the day, which means they don't grow as fast, which means they don't molt as fast, which means they don't roost in trees as fast. It all kind of accumulates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, accumulating the risk. All accumulates. Yeah. So the, yeah. the most you can keep them tied to a spot and not make them move, that's a good thing. Yeah. And, it, and it's not just from predation, as Mike was talking about earlier. You know, thermoregulation we're realizing is a really important part of it. And it's most of the time, instinctually, I hear people go to cold. Well, it could be heat, too. Like they have a narrow range and they're not thermoregulating and you know uh, I don't know if it's been done with turkey poults but there's a couple of studies with quail showing that if you if a quail chick goes out into one of those pasture areas it's dead in less than an hour from heat like it just can't it cannot use it and it has nothing to do with predators in that case so, you know, the, the structure is really important and it's something that the more I, you know, uh, develop relationships and go work with people and get on different properties of people, even people who are really fanatical about turkeys, this is what is usually missing. 
because all of the space is devoted, all the, the open space is usually devoted to cattle or, or hay or something like that, uh, or they just like it, or for some reason people just like to mow, so they want to have a hundred acres of areas to have to go mow, uh, you know, and, and a food plot. And often it's in some sort of food plot program that's not very good for turkeys. And you know, you, even if you're planting some of these things, like this plot right here, if that gets overrun with weeds because you're not dealing with it, and you have, you know, uh, Bermuda or you know Italian ryegrass or some or crabgrass taking over that place, which is going to be the case if you're not dealing with the problem. Uh, you know, even planting some things that can be conducive are not necessarily, I guess, is the point. Yeah. Earlier you was talking about a mix of uh, crimson clover and wheat, mm -hmm. but if we do that, how do we avoid the problem you're talking about with having the clover mat? Well, the, one of the things that I like about crimson is it, it'll die back. Uh, you know, it's dying before your poults are really going, but there are other clovers that, that they're green and lush at that time. Crimson's not really a problem because the seed heads become senescent. Yeah. You know, by May, which is when most of our poults are hitting the ground. So mm -hmm. it's kind of dying off versus, say, a, you know, a dino that's it's just yeah. super lush green, but, you know, at that yeah. time of year, and it's formed a complete mat. When there's, and there's been some popularity of some other mixes where you have crimson in it, but you have other annual clovers in it. And the idea with having that mix is to extend the foraging opportunity for deer. And by doing that, you're creating that issue for turkeys. So in terms of having something that's really balancing the two, if you're dealing with the, those few weed issues, uh, you know, that's a pretty good balance if you're trying to do both. Well, you but you really need to devote some space to poult production, and that's pretty rare right. that, that people like are doing that. Deer plot. Would it help any to go in and just push off two or three strips in it in the spring, or does that help any? What do you think, Mike? Death trap. Yeah. Death trap. Death trap. That's what I would have said. <laughs> I mean, Death trap. Mowing the strips. Strips are bad. Yeah, but I mean, if you read enough literature, you know, people tell you the best thing you can do in the spring is go push off strips in your car. Yeah. I, I tell people that ask me if, if you're interested in turkey on your property and your primary objective is shooting deer, but you really want, you want to lend an eye towards turkeys, consider getting some of that white clover out of your plot next year. Okay. Because not, not all your plots, but crimson is so much better for brood cover than, than white clover. Are. Okay. Yeah, and, and to re reiterate that, a lot of the benefits are not even from things you planted. Right. Like the, you know, we talked about the fire in the fall. The same thing's true with disking. If you disk in the fall, a lot of beneficial forbs or, or winter. Uh, as long as you have a length of time before the growing season starts, you, you end up with beneficial things and, and uh, often that'll be ragweed dominated, but stuff like that that has a really nice structure for brooding, it's not even stuff you planted. It's responding to the soil disturbance and these plants have died back and allowed those to colonize and the combination of those factors is 
is beneficial from a structure standpoint. So if got, now if that's all sickle pod or something, you know, there are a lot of undesirable species that could be in it and you, you're, you have to deal with them. And often that, that might be up front a lot of work. And then once you get a handle on it, then you're in maintenance mode and it's more of a spot spraying thing. What about using a roller crimper versus a disc? Is that better? It puts that dead mass back in soil. Um, I, I don't. I would prefer the disking personally. Um, but I, you know, that that's one of the benefits you get. You get from fire is you're removing all of that dead biomass, that thatch. You don't. What you don't want is a mat of dead plant biomass. That's going to hinder your response from your forbs that are desirable. Uh, in some cases, it can decrease the navigability for especially those young folks. And like Mike said, you know, we're we're talking about two weeks. That's what we're trying to get them through. Right? They've got a, you know, that hen has a real job from the time she lays that nest to two weeks after. That's that is a major bottleneck and to me I, I see virtually no one trying to address that two weeks after they hatch right and it doesn't seem like that's that that uh, important but we're talking about 90% of the pole mortality occurs in that based on a lot of work from Mike and others uh, you know that's that is a really important time to get it through and we're talking about maximizing success at that time. Uh, some of you may have seen, I've talked about it uh, on some podcasts and things recently, uh, the Tennessee study did an analysis from uh, a couple, I think it's 150 hens and, and things, uh, some of the initial work in Tennessee in a five county area, it's not that far from here. Uh, and they, when this kind of structure was available, the hens preferentially chose that uh, at a much higher frequency than its availability. And another thing, they, they looked at the uh, survival probability, like cumulative for the nest, and it was, I think it worked out to 2% per day uh, when they had the highest quality nesting structure. And uh, I forget what the exact numbers were on pulp production, but it was substantially higher from having, from the hen having access to this stuff. Later on, if the poles are growing up, and this might be getting thicker and thicker, is there some indications we're going in August and bush hogging these fields or September? Uh, what do you do with your food plot between the time you plant it for deer? And yeah, so by that time, it, you, you may need, uh, depends on if you're, what you're managing for, but you may need to clean it up to get it prepped for planting, and that's fine. I mean, you know, the poles, what, you know, they're, they're flying up roosting well before that. You know, what we're talking about with this stuff is really that, that really young poult. We're trying to get them through that, that really uh, hard period for them to su survive. Is that so, a pea patch that you can manage around? Well, I think what, Mike can speak. Different states than those, but yeah. You've got to have a goal that you're going to try to have this ready. Sure. Peak hatching? Is that what you asked? Yeah. When is your goal for hatching? For, for this two weeks of survival. Central Alabama, Central Georgia, or 
Uh, low country, South Carolina, Central Mississippi, North Louisiana band. It's about May 10th. Yeah. That, that's when they're two weeks old. Or no, that's the peak weeks. in hatching. That's when they hatch. So the peak in the two week old would be towards, towards Memorial Day. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. I was, well, I've had success making a dirty plot. I love dirty plots. You got a wide spot in your road and a tree fell over. You got to cut that up anyway. That fall, you'll put crimps and, and weed out. That next spring, it's, it's going to come back patchy. And you're going to mm -hmm. have ragweed stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. Go, don't plant it every year. Just, you yeah. got the daylight in there. Yeah. Whatever. Well, I've seen strategies like that used really effectively, especially when you're trying to connect things. The connectivity is often really poor in people's property in terms of connecting things that turkeys need. And uh, I've seen people use strategies like that really effectively where they daylight roads and try to get them wider, and they're using that as early their early succession. They might plant it. Yeah. Yeah. So as long as you you don't have some real problems with weeds, you know that that can be a really effective way to produce a lot of of uh, poult rearing habitat. So. I've seen poults in Georgia tail end of the turkey. Mm-hmm. Not often, but I've seen that a couple of times. Yeah. If I've got an area that I'm not planning for anything, what would be the best time of year to go in and just disc it and let it along? Well, if you're not going to plant it in anything and you've gotten rid of grass, so, uh, you know, if you had it in a pasture grass or something and you've gone in and taken care to, to deal with that, then uh, disking in the fall and winter would be the time. To encourage the full, the desirable forage. Yeah. In fact, if you if you move that around and let's say you're going to disc in May, you're going to end up with a lot more undesirable stuff. Uh, Johnson grass is one that around here is going to take over the world if you do that. Yeah. Uh, you can go ahead. I think we already looked at that one. I did not kill that turkey, unfortunately. <laughs> so even in the you know in in the situation like Mike was talking about, this is still a better situation for the older poults. But uh, you know when they're really young, it's still not a very good place. And you know some of Mike's work shown that the uh, the clover is really bad about moisture. So you know uh, you'll see turkeys using that later on. And it's better having those weeds, those beneficial weeds, colonizing it. Go ahead. So you can see uh, here it's got some red clover mixed in. Go ahead. What about that? That's what we're striving for with our perennial clover, right? Deer wear it out. Yeah, deer wear it out. Turkeys will use it. Uh, it's a great place to kill a turkey. Go ahead. But that's where poults go to die. Definitely not what you're looking for for producing turkeys. Go ahead. Now, let me uh, reiterate 
There's nothing wrong with having some of that, especially if you have multiple objectives. You, you don't have, you shouldn't go all in on any one thing, right? That, that's fine to have some, but what we consistently see is you have all something like that, and you're striving for that, and not uh, trying to produce this other stuff. And it's really common, and uh, there's really good work uh, on it showing having that that pulp rearing cover near nesting you know good nesting cover is really important and you have to mix up things and you know think about that connectivity making sure that you have things directly adjacent right yeah Uh, I, I've personally seen, and with our camera stuff, we'll see them using the edge of that a lot. I, what, what about? Uh, They're not walking to the center of that unless they have to. But, I mean, now, now, a little bit older. Think right? about this too. I mean, if you see a bird in a place, it doesn't mean that's, that's a good spot. Think about it. I mean, yeah. Just because you saw a bird there doesn't mean the consequences of you seeing it there were positive. Uh, well, what we see in, plot, in areas like that is, well, just like Marcus said, those broods will stay along the edge. Part of that is it gets hot out in the center. Part of that is their only escape option when they can't fly is to run. So, and if they get out in the center of that and it's early in the morning and they're really young, they, they get wet and then they, they shiver and have to brood under the hen. Well, if they're brooding under the hen, they can't, they're not eating. Um, what we generally see is with young broods, they don't go anywhere near those open areas like that. When I say young, I mean less than two weeks old. Once they get about 20, 25 mm -hmm. days old, they'll start traipsing out from the edge because they can fly, you know, they can flutter and get back to the edge. Mm -hmm. If I'm kind of looking at this, because I've got some of that, like early spring, you're going to see turkeys, adult turkeys eating that. Mm -hmm. Sure. But don't come in and bush hog it or spray it. Let it go until. September or whatever, if you want to come in and bush hog it then. Yeah, that, that yeah, later, season or whatever. I, I think that, that's what Craig has, his recent work, uh, where he's looking at mowing, he's you suggesting you, that you, 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 you your your yeah, but not that you don't mow it ever and under any circumstances, but you're doing that later in the season. Right. You don't want to, if you, if this thing has a bunch of ragweed popping up in it, you don't want to mow that right. early in in the year, you know, when, when it could be helping with, with structure for broods, old, older broods. So I just absolutely loved this. I mean, to me, I could have sat there and listened to him talk and show pictures for the entire day. And, you know, I've gotten, as I've gotten older, yes, I obviously I still love to hunt, but what I've gotten more of an appreciation for over the years as I've gotten older is managing the dirt and what's yeah. coming out of it. And so, you know, to be able, because it, it's, it's a construction project, you know, and some of it, you get to see instant results, select cutting instant results, you know, obviously if it's a huge block that you're select cutting, it's not instant, but you get it. A machine comes in there, a tree goes down. Hey, I like that. That's cool. I can see now that there's sunlight getting to the ground. Fire, instant results. And then you've got the long-term results as well of watching the 
undergrowth come back up after you've opened up the canopy and gotten that sunlight to the ground. You, you're watching the right kind of plants that you want to grow up from that burn that you do, you know, and that stuff that takes time and it takes repetition of that fire and it takes, you know, some tending to hack and squirt like you guys were doing on your place, you know, and, and so you get a little bit of, of everything. You get that instant gratification and then you get the long-term results as well and get to watch your turkey population grow in the process and, and your deer benefit and your quail benefit and lots of other critters benefit your songbirds your pollinators you know all these things benefit from the things that we do to manage for wild turkeys and part of that obviously being brood habitat so i don't know man it it was just a blast for me and i'm looking forward to bringing you guys the second part of marcus's presentation next week so it's going to be more great yeah. information. You're going to fill up a notebook, I'm telling you. Do you know if they plan to do this annually going forward or, you know, more than this one seminar? I would imagine so. The state of Alabama has done field days for the past several years. Now, whether or not Chamberlain and Lashley are going to be there again, I don't know. <laughs> but, yeah, they have field days. The state chapter does. For And look, it's not just for Alabama residents. You know, if you're in Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Florida, wherever, and you want to come in for that day, it's a, a little over a half day. It's about five, six hours is how long it lasted. They fed us lunch. There's a charge to attend. You know, after all, we got great speakers, great knowledge, and we got food. So, you know, you would expect to pay a little bit for that. But they'll do another field day next year. Not sure when it'll be. It'll be probably May or August again, and hopefully it'll be August because May is still turkey season. And yeah, I'll keep you guys updated and come on in, you know, bring the family and wherever it's going to be in the state and stay overnight at a local hotel or motel and get some education for half a day about turkeys and be around other turkey hunters man it's it's just fun yeah it's hard to hard to have a bad time when you're surrounded by other turkey hunters for sure yes indeed and yeah. i just got a picture of the coon dog with a coon on the ground all right one more has bit the dust all right i like it 160 nice even go. yeah there you go well that was that was cool stuff i enjoyed that i'm looking forward to the other half of it yeah. Like you said, the management aspect is pretty darn fun, and we need to get a lot more people to participate in that enjoyable part of this process. Yes, indeed. And, you know, look, guys, if you lease property from a private landowner, a timber company is probably not going to care. But if you lease property from a private landowner, send them a link to this podcast in yeah. next week's show as well. You know, you, you never know what may come of that they may say you know what that 20 acre field over there that we're not doing anything with letting it go fallow or you know whatever the situation may be if you want to burn that and you're willing to pay for a bulldozer to come in and cut a fire lane around it fire break around it knock yourself out you never know what will come of it so share this week's show with the person that the landowner that you lease land from and just, you know, ask, is there anything that we can do for you 
on your property that might help to bring more turkeys, to grow more turkeys, to grow more deer, quail, all the good stuff that comes along with habitat management. So just a I thought. Think I think that's a great idea. So how about that for a favor of the week? We just run with it. Works for me, man. I think that's a great favor of the week. Share it with, share it with a landowner that you either hunt on or maybe one you don't. Just share it with a, somebody who owns some land that needs to be helping turkeys. Yeah. Yep. Fantastic. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Next week is a good one as well, and it'll be here before you know it. And then I'll be telling everybody that we're 135 days away from opening day of spring turkey season in Alabama. I'm just that sounds good. But why don't you wrap it up? Let's try to hope this week passes fast so we can get to that 135 days. <laughs> it, it will. It will. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week. And we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And make sure to head over to www.iamturkeyhunting.com to subscribe for free turkey hunting tips, tactics, strategies, and product reviews to help you have a more successful turkey season. And stay tuned for upcoming episodes on hunting afternoon birds, how to film your hunt, and the breeding cycle of hens, as well as some guest interviews. Thanks again for listening. We know your time is valuable, and we appreciate you sharing some of it with us. See you next week.